Well, good morning. Thrilled to be here. I uh, did my uh, podcast this morning on the, the briefing, and when I'm traveling, I always say where I am. And so this morning, I just signed off that I was in Columbus, Nebraska, and I've been getting some interesting emails from people. They say, what are you doing in Columbus, Nebraska? And I wrote back, I've taken up uh, farming. And uh, because you people look a lot more sane than most of the people that I see as I travel around the country. So, and uh, and I, I've been doing some, some things I've never done before since I've been here, eating a steak in a gas station. That was a new thing. And, uh, and by the way, it was, uh, it was to the glory of God. It was a magnificent thing. I, I'm just afraid that I'm going to trust gas stations for more than they can deliver from now on. <laughs> wonderful to be here and wonderful to have Rick Holland to join us. Uh, dear friend Rick, I look forward to hearing from him and having some time of fellowship with him. I had a a very unusual experience this summer. My life is actually a collection of unusual experiences. If the Lord allows me to live long enough, I'm going to write a memoir just to share some of them, uh, a lot of them at my own expense, but nonetheless. uh, My avocation, what I love to do when I get to do it and I don't get to do it enough, is fishing. And uh, so I, I grew up on the water in Florida, and uh, the, the, I, I, could, uh, I could live in both worlds in Florida, freshwater and saltwater, right there on the coast. I could turn left and go into the Everglades, turn right and go to the ocean. And so I was never far away from somewhere you could wet a line and, uh, and go after something. And uh, so I, I lately have been able to, uh, to, to, to learn Kentucky fishing, which is different, and uh, different than Florida fishing. But I finally taught my wife into going with me one gorgeous evening this summer. And it's not that she doesn't want to go with me. Thankfully, she does. It's, 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 it's not that she doesn't love the water. She does. She just doesn't like fishing. It doesn't go fast enough for her. And, uh, and yet, the, the night was so beautiful, she said, I'd, I'd, I'd be glad to go. And, because when I go out, I, I stay out a while. And so I sat out until it was very dark. It was one of those beautiful nights, summer night, this beautiful big Kentucky lake. The weather was beautiful. Everything's beautiful. Everything was perfect uh, until we're getting ready to, to go in, and I, I, we're, we're about three miles away, and I, I crank up the boat. And the Floridian in me still loves speed on the water. And, uh, and so it's a fishing boat, and it's got plenty of power. And uh, so I cranked it up, and it was a beautiful moonlit night, and I just gunned it. And we're just heading across the water. It's beautiful. We're the only people out there. It's just stunningly beautiful. And something's on my leg. It's not supposed to be something on my leg. <laughs> I thought it was the kill switch line dangling down there. and So I pulled it up. Whatever it is, still on my leg. Well, when you're going that fast on the water, you don't check out what's on your leg, even though it's beginning to hurt. So we went all the way across the leg and, and stopped in the cove, and that's when I decided I'd find out what was on my leg. So it was in the pitch black. I got out the spotlight, put it on my leg, and there's a frog on my leg. What do frogs do on your leg? And if a frog's on your leg, it shouldn't hurt. Well, this frog did not like the light because he was not a frog. He was a bat. And uh, that's when I discovered that my wife had the spiritual gift of levitation. 
because she had been right beside me. And then I looked, and she is no more. Behold, she is gone from the midst of me. And she is there in the front of the boat. And, and she's all the, I don't even, she, she didn't, in the dark, she got up there. And she's holding on to the very front of the boat as I'm looking at this thing. And it's, I thought it was funny. It's flopping all over the bottom of the boat. It's, it's not happy. It sure does not like that light. And eventually it flopped out of the boat. Well, I thought, well, this is, this is, this is one. Never had that happen before. And uh, so I, I went out home, and it, of course it's, it's getting towards late. We had a little snack, and, and I sat down in my reading chair to read. But then I thir- first thought, no, I need to share this with the world. And so I put out a tweet on Twitter that said, finally talked Mary into going fishing with me. Ended up with a bat on my leg. Better get used to fishing alone. Ha ha. Well, that's, then I went back to reading, and I was engrossed in the book, and I decided, well, I'd pick it up to see how many of my friends were going to respond to me. So I picked it up, and, it, and the first thing I noticed was not that my friends were trying to respond to me, but the doctors were. And the, the head of pathology in the, the University of Arizona, or Arizona State, one or the other, he, uh, he sent me and said, I trust you're reading this in an emergency room. If not, you need to be. I looked into it, and it turned out he was right. So 2 o'clock in the morning, i 45 miles away in a medical center and sitting in the emergency room and feeling like an idiot. And uh, that started a great adventure called the Rabies Vaccination Series. And 11 shots later, I, am, uh, I can bite you, and you're safe. <laughs> but... Uh, the, uh, the, the reality is that I, I learned a lot in this process. It was a great educational opportunity because I didn't know a whole lot about bats. Little did I know that I lived in the second most bat-infested part of the globe. There's only one part of the globe that has more bats in central Kentucky, and that is Transylvania. Okay, so, all right, now we know where we stand. And uh, I learned other things about bats, which are they're the most anthropophobic creature on the planet. So if, if you have contact with a bat, it is a sick bat. And sick bats generally have rabies. And uh, then I thought it didn't bite me, it just attacked me. And uh, that's when I discovered that the bat's mouth is so small, its teeth are so fine that you actually can't tell if you've been bitten or not. And then this older doctor came in and he said, you're going to start this series because uh, we're not going to have you die. And he said, we had a 33-year-old mother of three who didn't think she was bitten and she died of rabies in May. 100% 100% fatal. We're not going to let that happen. Well, I didn't want that to happen. We, on that, we were agreed. And, and then they started bringing in, they brought in six syringes, five of which were, I thought, for the horse in the veterinary hospital next door. And uh, that, that's when I discovered, no, they were for me. And I've been preaching all over the country, so I've had to get rabies shots in New York City. Let me tell you, that is an adventure in itself because I think it's the people who generally need it there. Uh, more likely to be bitten by people, that is, than, than animals. But uh, nonetheless, um, I learned a whole lot about how the vaccine works. It's an amazing story of how the uh, rabies vaccine was developed. Louis Pasteur, as in pasteurization, all the rest was in very much taking the lead on this. And it was, it was the most dangerous work many, in terms of medical history. Many medical people have ever been called to take him on. He, he got medical students to help him and had any of them been bitten in the process, they would have developed rabies and died. 
and uh, there's incredible bravery as these young medical students pried open the mouths of rabid dogs and collected the material in order to make it. And, and then the very first little boy is bitten, and everyone's sure he's going to die. And because of the vaccine, he doesn't die. The first human being not to die once developing rabies. That's an amazing story. And, and, and all of us who received the, the vaccine since then are indebted directly to Louis Pasteur and to those medical students for that. But uh, ended up talking to a doctor from the Centers for Disease Control. Those people take disease really seriously. They think about it day and night. That's why they work for the Centers for Disease Control. And, uh, and they also assume you don't know anything which probably a safe assumption when it comes to many of these things. And, and so he decided that he was going to give me over the phone a lecture that turned out to be extremely helpful to me. It was a lecture on uh, immunology. Here's what he had to say. He said, look, he said, you are now safe from, uh, from rabies because no one in the history of rabies since the development of this vaccine has ever died once receiving the full series of, of treatments. It's, it's, it's that good. So then he decides he's going to share with me a lot of material that I'm really glad he did. He said, look, he said, when a baby comes out of the womb, that baby has an amazing, an amazing package of immunizations that the baby received from his mother. That, that baby already has medical defenses against an incredible array of infectious diseases that he didn't earn or deserve. It's simply given to him by the fact that he emerged from his mother's womb. His mother gave him all of these immunizations during the time he was in the womb. Now, there are other immunizations the child's going to need, but they're just the tip of the iceberg. The big ones the child received as a birthright. And he said, the problem is that once an immunization scheme begins to break down, it breaks down the same way it was strengthened, such that if, if people do not get the vaccines and if people do not keep up these uh, resistances, then what new babies, newly born, will receive is a weakened form of that immunization, that, that medical defense. And, and over time, you can actually undo all the gains of the, the miracles of vaccines and, and, and these treatments. And it struck me that that's exactly where we are. He was talking about bats and rabies. I was thinking about the culture because that's exactly the way it is. We, we received as a birthright an enormous set of immunizations, an immune system that by our birthright was healthy, and we have weakened it. And instead of passing along strength to strength, we are passing along weakness to weakness. How do you explain this? Well, if you're a sociologist, we'll leave the Centers for Disease Control and go to the sociology department, which is a dangerous thing to do, but we will for a moment. And you ask the sociology department what's going on, the sociologists would describe it as the process they call secularization. Now, secularization is the way that... that intelligent people, especially academics, were certain the world was going to go. In the aftermath of the Enlightenment, in the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution, in the aftermath of modern Republican systems of government and, and the rise of democracy, in the aftermath of, uh, of, of all these new and modern ways of thinking, they were absolutely certain that belief in God would recede into the background. And that as history went forward, fewer and fewer people would believe in God. Now, 
very quickly, this is important stuff in terms of understanding how we arrived at the point we now know in this culture and ask questions about where it's going. We're looking at this as Christians, so we're asking explicitly theological questions. But those theological questions are often verified in terms of, of what we think we're observing by other sciences, even in a fallen world. And the sociologists come along and say, look, what happens is that the binding authority of of theistic belief, of belief in God, begins to dissipate. And generation after generation, there'll be less and less. Children will be born. They'll be less likely to believe in God uh, or to have any specific religious or theological beliefs than, than their parents. Generation after generation after generation, they'll get weaker and weaker and weaker. My uh, program, Thinking in Public, deals with these big, uh, these big questions. And I enjoyed, uh, a couple of seasons ago, a conversation with Peter Berger. Peter Berger is professor of sociology at Boston University. Uh, he is, he is uh, 90-something years of age. And, and he's lived long enough to be one of the major founders of secularization theory, and he's lived long enough to figure out it didn't work and to write an article retracting it. Now, that's, that's an amazing thing, to live long enough to retract your own theory. But he didn't retract it wholesale. He just retracted it mostly. This is what he said. He said secularization didn't work. It turns out that belief in God did not disappear. As a matter of fact, around the world, there's been a resurgence of religious belief, not a decline of religious belief. We got it completely backwards, except where it was right. He said, it turned out the secularization theory perfectly fit Europe and the American university campus. He says, if you want to find the two most secularized cultures on earth, go to Europe or the American university culture. It's an amazing insight. By the way, he did this massive study. It's called a longitudinal study. It's one of these massive studies that hundreds of thousands of dollars have to fund, and it was of relative religiosity. Now, theologically speaking, we're not too interested in relative religiosity, but it is interesting nonetheless. And, and so they measured all the nations of the world in terms of which nations are the most religious and which are the least religious. And you're not going to be surprised by this. The most religious country on earth was India. As Peter Berger said, you can't move there without knocking over someone's idol. Whatever they are, it's not secular. And it turned out the least religious people on earth at that point were the Swedes. Sweden was the most secular of all the nations. And then someone asked Peter Berger, said, how do you explain the United States? And he said, oh, that's easy. It's a nation of Indians ruled over by an elite of Swedes. Now, you read the newspaper, that'll explain a whole lot. A nation of Indians ruled over by an elite of Swedes. But Peter Berger had another amazing insight, and this has been very helpful to me as a Christian. And uh, he's, a, he's a Christian. And, and that is thinking about, well, then what did happen here? What, what, what happened here? If it wasn't the old theory of secularization, something else happened. He calls it pluralization. Here's what he, he said. He said, he said, what happened in the United States was not the abandonment of theistic belief, but the radical redefinition of it. It's the secularization of American Christianity from within. It's, it's not the abandonment of belief in God. It's just the development of a user-friendly God. It's the exchange of the God of the Bible for a God who's kind of like the great-grandfather therapist in the sky. It's the exchange of a God who speaks to us with binding authority in His Word to the God who is willing to give us advice and uh, is as one other uh, sociologist noted, a break glass in case of emergency God. He's there in case of emergency. But there's no doubt that 
We cannot explain our times without understanding that the Christian worldview has been receding into the memory of many Americans. We, we can't explain the massive moral shifts that have taken place without understanding that before those massive moral shifts, our convictions require us to understand there had to be a preceding massive theological shift because those great moral and cultural shifts would be impossible if the population believed in the God of the Bible, the God who revealed himself in his word, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God of Scripture. This is, this is not the God most Americans say they believe in when over 90% of Americans say they believe in God. And that explains why over the course of the hours we spent together yesterday morning looking at Romans 1, and uh, last night, looking uh, throughout the Scripture in an attempt by biblical theology to come to grips with the, the crisis in marriage and sexuality, you can understand what would be unthinkable if we believe in the God of the Bible has become the casual, automatic, almost universal worldview in certain sectors of the United States and increasingly more. The younger you go in the population the less explicitly Christian the worldview, the, the closer you are to a center of major intellectual activity such as a university, the less likely you're going to find people who, uh, who actually hold anything like the Christian worldview. And the Christian worldview, by, by the way, all kinds, of, all kinds of ridiculous claims made by Christians who are well-intended but wrong. Uh, it is wrong to overclaim how Christian America ever has been. Uh, theologically speaking, we don't want to claim a lot of the people that some Christians want to claim as Christians because in so doing we have to define Christianity down to something that is sub-biblical Christianity. Uh, by the way, I did a thinking in public just a, a few weeks ago, a major conversation with Gary Fraser of the Master's College. He's done a massively important work on this in terms of the religious beliefs of America's founders. What is not true is to claim that they were all believing, confessing evangelical Christians. By the testimony of many of them, they certainly were not. But here's what they were. There were men and women who lived in a world that made sense because of the Christian worldview they inherited. Their primary understandings of truth, their operational understandings of morality, those things came explicitly from the Christian worldview. They didn't have anywhere else to get them. And so the liberty that we enjoy as Americans, our, our ordered liberty that is a, a part of our the center of our system of government, these things only make sense in a world that is informed by the basic understandings that are provided by the Christian worldview. But we're living in a time in which those basic understandings have generation by generation been diluted and marginalized and, uh, and debated and, uh, and rejected and, and largely forgotten. It's hard to imagine what a post-Christian culture would look like, but I think we're beginning to see what a post-Christian culture would look like. If you go to Western Europe, you see what a post-Christian culture would look like, and increasingly in parts of this, of this continent as well. For instance, you go right across our northern border and into Canada, Canada tracks Europe, not the United States on these issues. So Canada is roughly as secularized uh, as France. So it's a very interesting phenomenon to look at. But it also explains why we have to talk about some of the things we're talking about here. 
We were talking about sexuality last night, and I, I, I often tell this anecdote because it just communicates the entire world to me. I was 13 years old, and uh, my grandparents had, had two wonderful sets of grandparents that lived in a small town in Florida, both involved in agriculture, and, and that, that meant oranges and strawberries. And uh, uh, my one grandfather grew orange tree seedlings. He had a seedling farm, which is an interesting thing. I don't, I don't know what Nebraskans would do with that. Uh, but no, no, it's, it, they, you, you have to get orange trees somehow. This is how you get them. And uh, he also grew strawberries. And uh, so uh, when I was 10 to, say, 14 years old, I just lived between summers between my two grandparents' houses. I could, I could ride my bicycles. I Mayberry. I could ride my bicycle from one to the other. I went back and forth. And I quickly learned that I wanted to be at the noonday meal at my mother's parents' house and the evening meal at my other grandparents' house. I mean, the 13-year-old boy figures out the food really quickly. And uh, basically, it's where, where granddaddy is hungry, there is food. And uh, so I, I figured that out. By the way, we called the noonday meal dinner and the evening meal supper, which my wife finds incomprehensible. But nonetheless, that's the way it worked. So at dinner... Uh, with everyone sitting around the table, they all worked out in the field. They, they, they didn't talk a whole lot at the meal. Instead, Paul Harvey did the talking for us. <laughs> and we had a red Bakelite radio. You turn it on, and once it warmed up, Paul Harvey came on and talked to us at lunch, dinner. So I can remember eating, and Paul Harvey used the word homosexual. Never heard that before. It was not only possible, but probable that a 13-year-old boy, when I was 13, had never even heard the word. I didn't know what it was. It did sound interesting. So uh, I had the sense not to ask right there at the table, what is he talking about? So I decided that I would get to my grandfather uh, after lunch. So they're all ready to get back to work, and I walk out with my granddaddy, and I said, Granddaddy, what's a homosexual? And my grandfather, who was just most wonderful grandfather, both of them were. He loved me dearly and uh, was just like a, another father to me. And it wasn't exactly at this moment. And he grabbed me by my shirt and pulled me right up to him. He said, son, you mentioned that word again. You won't sit down for two weeks. Do we have an understanding? <laughs> I'm not asking again, I can tell you that. <laughs> but that's the world that existed in 1972. Uh, a world in which a 13-year-old boy could, could be very much operational in the world and never even hear the word and not know what it was, and a world in which it made sense to his grandfather to tell him he's not going to get an answer. And we now live in a world in which, quite frankly, you've got kindergartners being educated in the fact that Heather has two mommies or somebody has two daddies, and it's, it's a completely different world. And you wonder, how, how do we get there? What, how do you make sense of a world that in one man's lifetime from 13 to 53, that's 40 years, how, how, how can that much change happen? Well, in reality, we're looking at living at warp speed in terms of these changes. And it's only explicable because the worldview that made such a thing unspeakable in 1972 has been completely eclipsed by a new worldview that is operational in the culture around us. Now, not true for everyone. A worldview shift doesn't have to be true for everyone. It almost never is. It has to be true, first of all, for those who are shaping the culture. 
And it's been true there for a long time. It has to be true for those who are, who are shaping the discussion. And it's been true there for a long time. For, the, for those who teach the young, especially in colleges and universities, it's been that way now for a long time, more than one man's lifetime. And now we're reaping the eclipse of the Christian worldview. Now, we have to be very careful as Christians, as evangelicals, as gospel-minded people about this. It is not evangelism to convince persons of the Christian worldview. Hell is going to be filled with people who held to the Christian worldview. I wrote an article a couple weeks ago on the fact that uh, Christian values can't save anyone. Uh, We're saved by the blood of Christ. And salvation comes to those who by faith believe. There are those who believe in the Christian worldview who do not know Christ as Savior. So we, we don't fool ourselves into thinking that convincing persons of the truths revealed in the Christian worldview is evangelism. It is not. And evangelism is the first task of the church. But it is important for us to recognize what happens when the Christian worldview is eclipsed. And what happens when the worldview of, of Christianity, the inherited worldview of generations, is eclipsed. It's like that immunization default. It's like that fall off of the immune system where instead of every child being born into greater and greater health, every child is now being born into greater and greater confusion. The immune system has just been weakened, intentionally so, and now pervasively so. Last night we were looking at how that is to be understood when it comes to the defense of of marriage and the family and what our responsibility is. And we want to put this into a a biblical theology frame. We want to put it into a Christian worldview frame. But we also have to put these questions into a gospel frame. That's our responsibility. And this morning we're looking at the defense of life. And this is an amazing thing. And and again, you think about the eclipse of the worldview. You go back to the founding of the American experiment. And what what is it? The liberty of, of the individual. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The worth of the individual was such that there was this great revolution called democracy, such that the individual had, had the right to a vote, was now not only a human being, but was also a citizen. And you come to understand that even as that was central to the worldview, it was, it was so much so that it was put forward as the declaration of the very existence of this country. Now you come to understand that we, we're not even sure what we're talking about when we talk about a human being or a human life. The assaults upon human life and human dignity in the 20th century were unprecedented in terms of modern times, and now we are seeing assaults that go far beyond that. We need a frame of reference to think of these things, and I want to invite you to turn with me to the 139th Psalm. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. I know when I sit, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. The men of God, O men of God, depart from me. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You come to the 139th Psalm and you find in the experience of David and in his confession here a most symphonic display of the divine sovereignty. Theologically, this is one of the classic texts in Scripture that affirms the perfection of God we refer to as His omnipresence. There is nowhere where God is not present. David begins by the personal knowledge that the Creator has of him. You have searched me and known me. And the personal knowledge of God that God knows, David says, when I sit down and when I rise up. And then there's the internal knowledge. You discern my thoughts from afar. It's like what we find in Hebrews, a parallel passage on the perfection of the Scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 4, the, the, the Scriptures are used by the Holy Spirit to discern the, the thoughts and intents of the heart. We, we are searched by the Scriptures as we are searched by the Spirit, as we are known by the Father. There's nowhere David can go that he isn't known by his Creator. There is, there is nowhere he can flee and be away from God's presence. Now, that's not a threat to David. That's a promise to David. He's not, he's not trying to go somewhere where he can flee from God's presence. His point is that there is nowhere he can be taken. There, there is nowhere he can go where God is not there and God does not know him. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. We live in what is now described as a surveillance society. I don't know how much of it's found in Columbus, Nebraska, but in a city like London, you are under camera surveillance if you are basically outside a private residence at some point. London has more cameras per capita than any other city in the world. But the same thing is true largely in New York. And, you know, even the crime dramas on television have this now. You know, looking for a car? Well, look at all the cameras at the stoplights. Look at all this. You know, you can catch this, the cameras at the gas station. You can track it down. And uh, one of the newspapers I read just over the weekend talked about the fact there are now private firms working for private investigators so that if a wife is suspicious of her husband or a, a, a husband is suspicious of his wife or an employer who's suspicious of an employee, they can hire people to do a, a license tag track. And you can actually track where someone goes and all the rest. And, 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 and the point made by one of these articles is it is harder and harder now to get away with something. 
That's not a bad thing. But David knew this all the way back. Uh, the ultimate surveillance society is the knowledge of the one true and living God and of the fact that there is nothing hidden from his sight. David knows that he knows him. He knows his rising up. He knows his, his lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. He even knows what David's going to say before David says it. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. That's a sweet reference to God's presence. Such knowledge, he says, is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain it. I don't, David here is confessing. He doesn't even know himself as the Father knows him. That's a good thing for us to know. We do not know ourself as well as the Father knows us. He knows us perfectly. He actually knows our heart better than we know our heart, and he knows what we're going to say before we're going to say it, and he even knows why we're going to say it, when we're not even sure why we're going to say it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, that's the heavenly throne, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. I remember reading that when I was a, a boy thinking, does that mean God is in hell? This is the realm of the dead. Even when, when David's dead in the realm of Sheol, he's safe because the one who knows him is the one who's made his promises to him. The one the bonds of death cannot even break. As Jesus said to his church, the gates of hell, Hades, Sheol, shall not prevail. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Again, this is not just the presence of God. It's the fatherly presence of God, the sovereign fatherly presence of God. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, it's not going to be a problem. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. You know, throughout most of human history, human beings have feared the night. Good reason to fear the night. Bad things happen at night. People used to do something odd at night. It was called sleep. Because there's very little other that they could do in the darkness. We've changed that in terms of illuminating so much of the night. But the reality is, it's not night to God. And then there is this majestic passage, which is our primary concern, that begins, as you see here, in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So the father's knowledge of David, the creator's knowledge of David, did not come postpartum. He was known in the womb. In fact, he was known before his mother knew that she was carrying him. And look at the majestic and comprehensive display here. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This is after he said, you formed my inward parts. That's the internal organs. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Then he continues, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. It's a comprehensive declaration of the sovereignty of God, and of course it continues as David goes on. 
Speaking of the knowledge of God, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Then the psalm concludes with David praying for redemption from those who are his enemies and then praying humbly that God would search him and know his heart, try him and know his thoughts, see and test if there's any grievous way in him, and then lead him in the way everlasting. David's security was in the knowledge that he was known before he knew himself, and he was even known before his mother knew him, and he was known better than he knows himself, and he is known whether he is living or dead, sleeping or awake. He is known by the Creator who knew him, but not only knew him, who knitted him together, who, who put him together and framed his substance and saw him for who he was and knew him as David and had made promises to him in the womb and fulfilled those promises in his life and will continue to maintain those promises after his death, the covenant that God made with his servant David. But David's testimony here is essential to our biblical understanding of what it means to be a human being. Because David here is not referring only to himself, but to every single human being who's ever lived. God's sovereignty as creator extends not only into the womb, but into the very process whereby the womb finds its occupant. And God is the agent of bringing about life. We learned last night, as we were taught by Christ in Matthew chapter 19, to go back to the beginning. We go back to the beginning in order to understand God's purpose in creation and to get our grounding for our understanding of these things. And as we go back to the beginning, as you well remember, it is very clear that God creates human beings in a way that is unlike the rest of creation. In verse 26 of chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then, of course, he assigns to them the garden. And it was so, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And then we saw last night the creation not only of man, but out of man, of the woman, and we saw the, the creation of, of the social order and the covenant of marriage as they were made for each other. We saw biblical complementarity in terms of, of how they were made for each other. We, we need the different, not the same. As Adam learned, even through the process of naming the animals, there was not found for him a compliment fitting for him, and God created out of him Eve. And that's when he said, this is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh, she should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then you have the perfection of this picture when they are naked in the garden and unashamed. We're a long way from there. We're we're well east of Eden. And not only does that bring in the sexual confusion, the 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 confusion over marriage that we talked about last night, and thus that crucial and urgent issue for us, but also the question of life. And one of the things we need to note as Christians and those who bear the responsibility to teach and preach the Word of God is that if we do not teach and preach these things, they will not be known because no one else is teaching them. 
No one else holds to a worldview that declares that every single human being is a special creation of God and that the status of being a human being is distinctive from the rest of creation in that human beings and human beings alone are made God's image. The secular worldview, as we are learning, can't carry the freight of human dignity. It simply can't carry it. Because a worldview that is essentially secular and brackets the understanding of a divine creator and who has no category whatsoever for the image of God, the imago dei, it can't carry the freight of human dignity. It begins to weaken its hold on human dignity and the sanctity of human life. And so what we are noticing is the inevitable result of what happens when the very worldview that formed the security of David's life is eclipsed by something secular and the horrors mount. We didn't have to wait for some of the developments of the most recent period of our history. We just go back to the 20th century. It has become increasingly more dangerous to be a human being at the hands of other human beings. And you look at this and you recognize that we are now facing a challenge that that many Christians don't understand in terms of its scope. They can list issues of concern, abortion, euthanasia. Uh, they might be concerned about certain kind of biomedical research. They, they understand the assaults on human life, at least in terms of the headlines they read, but they don't see the big picture. Our job is to give them the big picture. Some biblical affirmations first. We've just seen, as we read together from Psalm 139 and from the first two chapters of Genesis, especially chapter 1, that the dignity and status of humanity is not something that we attained. Very important insight. Human beings did not attain a certain status. We did not achieve a certain status. We were created in a certain status by the Creator who did it for His glory. Now, the other thing to keep in mind here is that we're always looking at what we learn as Jesus teaches us to go back to the beginning. When we go back to the beginning, God creates all the flora and fauna, all the things that fill the earth, all the mountains and the landscape and all the rest, and it all brings Him glory. All of creation brings Him glory. Trees and, and, uh, and grasses bring Him glory. Um, animals bring Him glory. Dogs bring Him glory. If you have an imagination, you can believe that cats bring Him glory. Uh, you can understand that all kinds of things bring Him glory. And, and uh, you, you also understand that all these creatures are glorifying God, each in His own way, and her own way. I mean, you, you, and, and when I was a boy, by the way, I loved landing in, in, uh, in Omaha. And uh, I, I, I tweeted, I, I said, uh, Mary and I have mutually come to Omaha. Because when I was a little boy, I only knew of Omaha because of Marlon Perkins. And uh, I think that was his name. Yeah, Mutual of Omaha's Wild, wild Kingdom. And, uh, I mean, that, that, was, that was high television drama for my generation. And, uh, and I, I always thought, you know, that what I wanted to be, I didn't want to be old Mr. Perkins, who always seemed to be safe in some television studio. I wanted to be Jim. Remember Jim? Jim was the guy out there, you know, we're going to watch Jim as he tussles with the man-eating tiger. And, uh, you know, poor Jim, he's, he's the one that deserved the big credits for the show, but... But nonetheless, I, I was watching that, and, and the, nothing thrilled me as a boy more than watching predators at work. I don't know why. It probably says awful things about me, except for the fact, evidently, it said it about all my friends, too, because we were all watching it. And, and there's, there's nothing like watching a hyena 
you know, go after the, the carcass of something, and you know that that hyena did not kill that thing. There's something bigger in the grass. And then you see this nice little gazelle, you know, who's kind of walking in the grass. And the camera goes up, and then you know there's movement over there. And then you see the tiger or the lion or whatever he is, whatever Jim's opening his life to vulnerability to. And all of a sudden you see this gazelle who sees the movement behind her. And she starts running, and you know how this is going to end. And then you see that great big cat grab that thing and grab it by the neck and open the vein, and the blood starts flying everywhere. And, you know, that, the, the animal's coated. Remember how it used to look? That animal was coated with blood. And, of course, now we have the Discovery Channel where you can watch this 24-7 in full and living color. And the next thing you know, they're going to have a camera inside the, the lion. This is what it looks like when the lion's eating. Uh, but nonetheless, you look at that. Did you ever notice what didn't happen? What didn't happen is you never saw one of these great cats kill one of these animals and then look at himself and go, I don't know where this violence comes from. Uh, I mean, look at myself. I'm drenched in blood. Uh, I feel horrible about this. I mean, I was hungry, but I mean, that sweet thing, it's dead. And I just... I just gutted it. And I, 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 not only that, but I, I enjoyed it. I, don't, I, I, wor- I worry about myself sometimes. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you never see that. You never see that. Why? Because that, he was just doing what he was made to do in a fallen world. Yeah, this is why we ought to be really, really thankful for the picture of the new heaven and the new earth in which the lion and the lamb are together and the lamb is safe. Yeah, because otherwise we would be in the heavenly mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom. <laughs> yeah, we need to be very, very thankful that in the, in the consummation of all things, the lion looks to us as now a friend in the kingdom and uh, not as food. But between the fall and the new creation, you don't want to be... Did you guys see the guy that jumped out of the monorail at the Bronx Zoo because he wanted to be one with the tiger? This is just last week, guys. If you don't know if you watch it, a news guy here. He jumped out of the monorail, the Bronx Zoo, and jumped into the tiger enclosure where he was attacked and was only saved because he used a fire extinguisher to scare the cat, and he rolled under. And he, and he explained he wanted to be one with the tiger. Well, here, my dear stupid friend, here is how you become one with the tiger. You are eaten by the tiger. <laughs> then you are one with the tiger. You know, Good grief. My favorite line in that story was that he was put under medical care in light of the fact he might need psychiatric treatment. (laughs) You know, never mind. But you look at that and you realize we're made in a completely different capacity. When When you look at the biblical narrative, you look at creation, it tells us that human beings are made alone in God's image. We're the only creatures made able consciously to glorify God and to know Him. God addresses us by name. He addresses us with words. He holds us accountable in a way He does not hold the other creatures accountable. He creates for us such things as the covenant of marriage because He loves us and He understands us. He knows that we are not only highly intelligent creatures because He made us that way, He knows that we are moral creatures because He made us that way, and He knows that we need we need to be spoken to by the Creator. He treats us differently. One of the key issues of confusion in our day is the confusion between the, the, those who understand that human beings are made in the image of God and those who now lack any sufficient definition for why human beings aren't just other animals. I was recently uh, speaking up in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts at uh, an event at Harvard. 
I said recently, this was actually, this occasion was a couple of years ago. And uh, there was a, a conference going on at the law school at Harvard. And uh, the, the conference was on the right of highly developed primates to, what do you think? Lawyers. Whole new client base for, for lawyers, you know. The great apes now have, uh, are, are to have attorneys. But, but the funny thing was, what made this really interesting was the protest. Was the protest coming from people who said it's nonsense for monkeys to have lawyers? No, it came from the people who said, if primates get lawyers, dolphins must too. We are increasingly living in a time in which the average person around us lacks any theological or worldview defense for arguing that human beings aren't just another animal. And then you have the entire animal rights movement that has arisen, and we don't have time to look at that in great detail, but someone like Peter Singer at Princeton University, who is none other than a professor of bioethics of all things at Princeton University, who says that basically there are some pigs and cows that have more dignity and right to life than some human beings. He also argues that it ought to be lawful for a mother to murder her own child up to about the age of two because the child doesn't develop capacities of language and relationality adequate to be called human until about age two. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. You look at that and you say, well, the secular world, the world that rejects what we've just been reading is a world that lacks the ability to confront that and to defeat that. And, and so those worldviews are gathering momentum all around us that deny human dignity and subvert human dignity and say that human beings are just accidental. By the way, this is one of the major problems with evolution and Darwinism because uh, if, if I had time to do that, I'd love to spend an entire day on that. But the inevitable result of the theory of evolution is that humanity is just a more highly developed accident than the other accidental beings around us. There's no particular human dignity. There's no particular telos or, 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 or end to which we were created. And, and so what you're looking at there is the reality that around us increasingly are people who are deadly. And, and to whom are they deadly? Well, they're deadly to many people that, uh, that aren't able to speak for themselves, first and foremost, especially the unborn and uh, increasingly the infirm and the aged. A couple of other biblical insights we need to see before we go further. There is no gradation of human dignity in Scripture. America celebrates many days. We need also to commemorate many days just in terms of recognizing our own need for repentance, not only as individuals but as a nation. What happened 50 years ago today? 50 years ago today, James Meredith was given admission to the University of Mississippi. 50 years ago today, I'm, that, that's in my lifetime. I'm soon to be 53. In, in the span of my lifetime, it made sense for the governor of Mississippi to get up and state that a black person had no right to enter the University of Mississippi 50 years ago today. There is no biblical justification for any gradation whatsoever in terms of human dignity. Every single human being is made in God's image. In fact, the actual Hebrew is made God's image, not just in, no preposition, but made God's image. There are insidious assaults upon this all over. And, and by the way, in terms of the race issue, we need to remember that there is a biblical theology that must be before us that points out that race is indeed evidence 
of how God intends to glorify Himself. One of the most important pictures for us in Scripture is that picture of the B'nai Elohim, the blessed ones of God before the throne of God. When we are all gathered there, what will it be? Men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. In other words, God isn't going to make us all look alike in the kingdom. He's going to rejoice in the fact that His glory and the glory of, of His Messiah, His Son, the Anointed One, is going to be declared in every tongue, from every tribe, from every ethne, every, every nation. And what God rejoices in is people should rejoice in. And, of course, Paul explains that out of all the nations, he is creating one race. Well, what's that race? The race of the redeemed. But we must understand the biblical worldview is that every single human being at every stage of development is made God's image and thus bears an inherent dignity and sanctity of life. Let's talk a minute about what these assaults are. We need to start at the very beginning because at the very beginning there are these assaults. Some of these assaults go under the category of birth control and contraception. Here's one of the neat little things you do if you want to pervert a moral system. You change the language. Contraception has been understood as that which prevents conception. You don't have to be a Latin scholar for this. Contraception. The only problem is that the medical community has redefined contraception. They no longer mean that which prevents the sperm and the egg from meeting in order for fertilization to take place. That's what we would think contraception would mean. They now mean that, con- that, that conception occurs with the successful implantation of the fertilized egg in the uterine wall. And you say, well, why does that? I didn't need an obstetric lesson this morning. Well, you do. Because that means that any form of birth control that operates between the fertilization of the egg and the successful implantation in the womb is actually an early abortion. It's called an abortifacient. And there are many Americans, including American Christians, who don't have any concept of this whatsoever. But this leads to the other problem. Even before you get to abortion in terms of what we would call technically and legally abortion, all the the controversy over stem cell research and the use of of embryos in medical research indicates that evidently we're surrounded by millions of Americans who think that the human embryo has no moral status whatsoever. But let me point out, every one of us was an embryo. And that the natural destiny of every embryo, given God's creation, is that it becomes a human being that walks and talks and that we recognize. The, the, the Christian worldview is the only worldview that dignifies what we can't see in terms of being human. That's what's so very important. It, it, it's fairly easy to convince your neighbor that his kid is, is worthy of life. It's the, it's the embryo that they often just can't even understand. Only the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview alone would go all the way back to conception and say at that very moment, because that's where David takes it. That's where David, and this isn't just divine poetry. This is God's self-revelation in his inerrant and infallible word. He is telling us through David that at the very moment he was conceived, he was already known, and furthermore, he was already formed, even, as David says, all his days were before him. God's sovereignty was such that that embryo had a destiny that was established by the sovereign creator. Human beings couldn't see it. His mother didn't even know that he was there. 
And she wouldn't know that for a considerable amount of time. And when she did know him, he was known for a long time before she knew him and felt him and perceived him, even in the womb. Christians who think that we can simply take a pass when it comes to uh, concerns about embryonic research, that which destroys human embryos, and, and furthermore, it's not just the destruction of human embryos by that means, it's also the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of frozen human beings in IVF clinics all over America, stored up, and most of them will simply be destroyed because they were created for IVF treatments that will never be employed. Then you, you, you go further along the gestational pattern and you recognize the assaults upon human life and human dignity such that abortion, which has now been fully legal in the United States, basically upon demand since 1973, which is, uh, of course, 40 years ago, we're now looking at well over 50 million unborn Americans murdered in the womb. And we're looking at an America that's becoming more and more comfortable with that. You, you'll hear things about how, for instance, we're winning some of the battles in terms of the, of the fight for the sanctity of human life, and, and we are winning them, but we're winning them at, at, at places where people are beginning to say their sentiments are different, but it's not translating into policy. I mean, for instance, uh, we, we, we have gains that have been made by the ultrasound generation. You know, David here saying, no one could see me. Well, now we can see. I, I am routinely, I mean, like almost every day, almost every day, we have 4,500 students, about 3,000 of them on the campus, almost every day, a bright-eyed, horribly excited, 20-something, young, soon-to-be dad shows me a picture that I can't even understand. It's his unborn child. And you know the excitement of that. Um, Mary and I uh, had our babies before you were able to get this kind of stuff, it, you know. But now these these they they show up, and and not only that, they're they're showing you this. It's a boy. If you tell me, congratulations, it's it's wonderful. But you know what? We have a generation of kids who've grown up, and they've seen little brother and little sister on the refrigerator as a as a an ultrasound image. You're not going to tell them it's not a baby. And of course, as it gets larger and larger, you see it. And and the most amazing thing is, you know, that the, you've you've got four and five year olds who are going with mom now and able to see little sister and little brother by means of the ultrasound and see them moving around in the womb. You're not going to tell them that it's not a human life. But where policy is made, it's becoming ever more dangerous to be a human being in the womb. And because there are new technologies and new ways of dealing with this, and there are new developments, such as the unassailable fact that in some communities in the United States, abortion now far outstrips live birth, far outstrips live birth. The number of abortions in some American communities is now greater than the number of live births. In other words, it has now become a routinized way of people dealing with pregnancy. There's so much to deal with there, but the reality is that the Christian church has no way to avoid the responsibility of dealing with this honestly and calling it what it is, which is intentional murder, and contending for the sanctity of life inside the womb and outside the womb. And it's not just, of course, abortion. After that, it's 
It, it, and, and by the way, the abortion issue is becoming so twisted and, and, and so much more complicated. For instance, with the uh, in, uh, in vitro fertilization treatments, with the assisted reproductive technologies, you now have routinized what's called selective reduction, such that there are multiple pregnancies, that is, there are multiple uh, embryos that are implanted, multiple fetuses that begin to grow, and they'll come along and say, well, in order to have a greater likelihood of a successful healthy baby born, we need to selectively reduce, so we need to reduce, in other words, do an abortion on certain of these uh, in the womb in order to make it more likely that others will, others will thrive. By the way, there are insidious kinds of things going on here, such as in vitro fertilization, you know, assisted reproductive doctors. They want a high rate of success because this is a big business too. I'm not saying they're only in it for the profit motive. I'm not saying they're only in it for business, but they are known by their success rate, and their success rate is sometimes increased by what is none other than murder in the womb. And, and then you come to look at, and you understand that the, the assaults upon human life continue. Again, you, you have growing arguments ab about the fact that there are many human beings who simply don't have a right to live, either inside or outside the womb. Back in the, uh, in, in the nation of Germany, in the early 20th century, before Hitler, didn't wait for Hitler, before Hitler, the German Medical Society had begun moving towards the understanding that there were two kinds of life, of human life. There, were, there was life that was worthy. And then there was what they categorized as Lebens and Wertensleben's, life unworthy of life. So long before Hitler and the Nazi medical experiments and the, and the Holocaust, the groundwork was laid by the German medical profession that began to define human beings by racial superiority and other attributes as being more and less worthy of life. And on the category of those who were unworthy of life, that is, those who could be exterminated and you'd not be counting it as murder, I mean, how else do you get to the Holocaust? You can't get to the Holocaust uh, without destroying the understanding that every single human being is made in the image of God and has a sanctity and dignity of life. And you do that by arguing there are two classes of humanity, those that are worthy of life and those that are Lebens and Wertens Lebens, life un unworthy of life. And, and into that you put such things as, as uh, such, such people, such, such human beings as those who are afflicted with genetic abnormalities or something like Down syndrome. And so you look back and you say, well, look, America isn't Germany. We're, we're not about to become Nazi. We don't look and, and see the Holocaust staring us in the face. Well, right now, because of prenatal testing, about 90% of all unborn children diagnosed as being likely to have Down syndrome are aborted. What the German doctors put the framework together for in terms of worldview at the early 20th century that gave birth to the Holocaust, Americans are now quietly accepting. When I was doing my radio show uh, a few years ago, I interviewed a doctor, an obstetrician in Los Angeles who told me it has been years since I delivered a Down syndrome baby. What does that tell you? It doesn't tell you they're not being conceived. It tells you they're not being born. And, and the idea of life unworthy of life, of course, is extended out. I mentioned Peter Singer earlier, or you could mention uh, one of the, the founders of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, who said, uh, basically, a pig is a boy. In other words, they're the same dignity. And a pig has just as much right to life as the boy has a right to life. And you look at that and you say, it's absolutely ridiculous. But I'm telling you, there are a frightening number of people around us who accept that and who believe that. And, and this gets to a big issue. The Christian worldview 
informed by Scripture does not believe that we attain human status. Rather, we are given human status as our conceptual birthright given to us by the Creator. It's not something we achieve. But around us, increasingly, the world is defining human dignity in terms of that which the human is able to achieve, capacity to think, capacity to speak, capacity to relate, capacity to learn, which is why Peter Singer, again, the professor of bioethics at Princeton University, where Jonathan Edwards was once president, argues that it should be lawful for parents to kill their children before they reach the age of two if they do not attain sufficient intellectual growth. And you say, well, how in that could that happen? Well, we were warned. He was hired after he was making these arguments. He was brought from Australia in the University of Monash long after he was making these arguments. And those arguments are now being made at none other than Princeton University. And the fact that that's going on largely without your knowledge or controversy tells you it's not just there, it's all over. And then that leads, of course, to all kinds of things between birth and, and the end of life. But as we fast forward to the end of life, you come to understand that the sanctity of life is just as much a threat there. The whole idea of euthanasia, of the fact that we are sovereign over our own life and we'll declare when we've had enough and that we want a good death. That's what the word euthanasia means, good death. I can remember I was in college the first time I heard the word euthanasia, and I was thinking, well, why not youth in Africa and youth in, youth in America and everywhere else? Because I, I, I didn't see it. I simply heard it. I heard the word for the first time. And it was held out when I was a college, uh, first-year college student. It was held out as something that might one day be an issue, probably not in our lifetime, but in someone else's lifetime. But it is very much here. In, in the Netherlands, euthanasia is so common, it's simply called the Dutch cure. And in the Netherlands, it came together with the promise that this will simply be for those at the end stages of terminal illness, those who are suffering and they will choose. But now you don't have to choose for yourself. Your relatives can choose for you in certain cases uh, in the Netherlands. And, and not only that, it's not only for those who have terminal illness, but for those who say they have unbearable suffering. And, and now it's not just for those who have physical suffering and have a diagnosis of that, but those who say they have psychological suffering. And now in the Netherlands, they're driving it all the way down to where children as young as 12 and 13 supposedly have the right to end their lives and to have a physician assist them in ending their lives because they just decided life isn't worth living. And you look at that and you say, it couldn't happen here. Well, take yourself to Oregon. We're right here. And in other states as well, there are early experiments in this, and already the same thing is happening. It, you, you say it's only for those who are diagnosed as if this is right. Of course, it's not from the Christian worldview, but only the Christian worldview can say why it's not allowable. Because as you see, David didn't say here, you've counted all my days until I've had enough, and I declare when I will die. That's God's sovereign His sovereign and perfect rule. By the way, that's a, that's a big issue. Do we believe that His rule is perfect for us? If so, we cannot seek to contravene His will by even killing ourselves. That, 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 that's why suicide, in the Christian worldview, I, I can remember thinking, you know, because I, I can remember when I was like 14 and, and I read that suicide was a crime and I was thinking, well, why? How are you going to arrest him? Well, it, and it's because of the law. I mean, it's a 14-year-old thinking. But, but why? It's because the law reflects morality. Remember when I was talking about last night, people tell you you can't legislate morality? Well, if you can't legislate morality, why is suicide a crime? It's nonsense to say you can't legislate morality. It's what most of legislation is. But it is, from the Christian worldview, suicide is so horrifying because it is literally forfeiting the most precious thing that God has given us. And it is a direct act of defiance over his sovereignty. It is the creature saying, you do not mean good for me. You do not have 
have my good uh, as your goal, and thus I will take myself out of this picture rather than allow you to be Lord of my life. Well, we see all these threats to human life at the beginning, and I mean the very beginning is in the microscopic beginning, and at the end and at every point in between, and we have to understand that we will find that our own church members will be susceptible to these very lies if they are not taught comprehensively from the Scripture why human beings made God's image are unique in all creation and why every single human being is fully given the dignity and sanctity of human life and why it is the responsibility of the church to defend this. Do you not recognize that the Christian church in the very earliest stages of its existence, even in the midst of the evils of the Roman Empire was known because they didn't kill babies. In the Didache, one of the earliest forms of Christian teaching we find from the earliest time in the church, you do not kill unborn babies. The Greeks, if they had girls and, and they didn't want a girl, most of them didn't want a girl, they would simply leave them out, the, the baby out in the field to die or for the animals to take it. Unwanted children were just left out to die. And you say, well, that couldn't be happening now. There are hundreds of thousands of missing girls in India and China because the arrival of pre-diagnostic of, uh, of prenatal diagnostic information able to define the gender as such that it is now routine, in a, especially under China's one-child-only policy, that if you're only going to have one child, and according to Confucian cultures, it has to be a boy, if you're going to have ancestor worship and, and, and the ability to take care of you and to worship and to bring all this, then you're just going to be a boy, then you have, you have hundreds of thousands, perhaps now even untold millions of missing girls. And you say, well... That's where it goes. What are our defenses against that? There is no defense without the Christian worldview. Now, as I say, we don't confuse ourselves. The Christian worldview isn't evangelism. But you know what this does remind us of is this. And this is something that became very apparent to very clear-minded Christians in the 20th century with the horrors of the 20th century, two horrifying world wars, genocide, and all the rest. You can't evangelize dead people. As one German Christian said in the midst of the horrors of World War II, we can't evangelize them if we don't first make sure they're not murdered. We don't confuse it as evangelism, but we do remember it is the task of the church to speak up for the dignity and sanctity of human life at every point in development, in every womb, from natural birth, natural conception until natural death. We either believe or we do not believe what David believed. If we believe what David believed, then we understand that life matters most of all to God who made us in his image. Let's pray. My Father, we are so thankful for what you have given us in your word, which we otherwise simply would not know. And Father, I rejoice in the fact that we who are here hearing this word are reminded by David that you knew us before we knew ourselves. You formed us. And Father, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Father, we pray that your church will be armed with the truth to know how to deal with these things, lest we also become a part of the culture of death rather than the culture of life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Amen.